Uh, I told the story a few weeks ago about my friend Kayla, who I met uh, at a conference I was speaking at in California. I, I had been teaching on the verse that says that only the sick need a doctor. And I said to them, to the people at the conference, that that would make the church a hospital and not a courtroom. And after I finished teaching, this young lady came up to me. Her name was Kayla. And she said, Miss Rhea, that thing that you said about the church being a, a hospital and not a courtroom, she said, that was my experience. And I said, oh, Kayla, tell, tell me about it. And she rolled up her sleeves, and she had needle marks the whole way up her arms under her fingernails. And, and I sat her down, and I said, tell me your story. And she said, well, I was a heroin addict, Rhea, and heroin had stolen everything from me. She said, it, it stole my family, it stole my job, it, my income, eventually I lost my home, it took my health. And she said, I was, I was homeless on the streets of California. And she said, I, I just went from one high to another. I tried everything I could to get free. She said, I had gone from rehabilitation center to rehabilitation center. I had tried every treatment there was available. And she said, nothing helped. She said, I, in fact, I only got worse. And, and she said, I was, I was living on the street, and some lady just randomly came up to me, and she told me about Jesus. And she said, I thought to myself, I've tried everything else. Maybe I should try this Jesus. And so she said, one day there was a, a church on the, the street that she was living on. And she said, one day she went in uh, and she intentionally waited till after the service began. And she slipped into the back row. And then she left before the service finished. She said, because Rhea, I knew what people were going to say about me. It was clear I was a junkie. It was clear I was addicted. But she said, there was something about this Jesus that just kept drawing me back. And she said, so week after week, I would, I would slip into that pew after the service began. And, and I would slip out quickly before it ended. And, and, and she said, but I just kept going back because there was something about this Jesus. And then she grabbed this little old lady who was sitting a few rows back, and she introduced her to me, and she said, Rhea, this is so-and-so. And she said, one, one Sunday morning, I came in, and I slipped into that back row where I'd always been, and she said, and this woman was standing there waiting for me. And she said she took me by the hand and she led me to the front row and she spent the next several months telling me about Jesus. And she said, Rhea, I am sitting here six weeks clean because someone loved me enough to take me to Dr. Jesus. She said the church should be a hospital and not a courtroom. It should be a place where people can come and get healed, not a place where people can come and get judged. The church should be a place where, where people can come and, and find acceptance. Now, that doesn't mean we accept people's sin and we call good what God calls evil, but it does mean that we accept the person. Acceptance is the grace that allows others to be broken. It is always aware of and open to the potential of good in other people. It's understanding that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. No matter how deeply flawed a person appears or how broken and hopeless things appear in their life. In the church, people should find acceptance in abundance. But sadly, I fear they're encountering judgment in abundance. Now, we're not talking about acceptance of sin, but rather the acceptance of a person 
Somehow we think that accepting the person, we, we send a message to them that their sin is okay. Chuck Swindoll says, and I love this quote, we fail to give people unqualified acceptance because we're afraid that they'll take advantage of the situation and behave in sinful and destructive ways. We live under the reasonable, albeit mistaken, notion that by keeping a close watch on another's sin and by holding one another strictly accountable for errant behavior, we can inspire those we love to be better people. But acceptance is not permissiveness. Jesus proved that. In fact, his acceptance, hear this, his acceptance of sinners gave them greater freedom to acknowledge their own wrongdoing and seek from him a remedy for their sinfulness. His acceptance opened a door to repentance. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus never compromised the righteousness of God, yet he remained utterly accepting of deeply flawed people. And no incident illustrates this better than the one we're going to talk about tonight. The day a prostitute crashed a Pharisee's party. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we're going to read verses 36 through 50. But would you just pray with me before we begin? Father God, I, I'm just so grateful for your grace and your mercy. I'm so grateful that you snatched me out of the muck and the mire and you put my feet back on solid ground. I'm so grateful, Lord, for the privilege of being able to minister your word. And I pray tonight, Lord God, that you would fill my mouth with your words, that you would make my mouth such a sharpened sword, Lord God. That my message would not be with wise or persuasive words, but Lord, that it would be a demonstration of your Holy Spirit's power. That you would move with power in this place. That you would fall like fire and descend like rain. That you would pierce hearts and minds with your word. And Lord, that you would guide us into all truth. I'm so thankful that you tell us we don't even need a teacher. That your Holy Spirit will come and teach us. Holy Spirit, we invite you in this place tonight. We invite you to, to bring a spirit of wisdom and revelation. That it would rest upon us, Lord God. And that you would teach us, Lord. Teach us truths about your word. Father, I pray for supernatural revelation, for supernatural understanding, for insight and wisdom we don't have. Lord, fill my mouth. Help me to boldly and confidently proclaim your word and move among the hearts and the minds of your people tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 7, verse, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, remember what I told you about behold a few weeks ago, how anytime you see behold in the word of God, it is, it is meant to get your attention. It's meant for you to say, to listen up, make sure you don't miss what's coming. And behold, the scripture says, a woman in the city who was a sinner, <laughs> when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at, the, stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, 
he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. He said to him, you have judged rightly. And he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair on her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Look at verse 36. It says, now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. The, the, new King, or the King James Version says, now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. That phrase, was requesting, it is in the imperfect tense. It indicates that he was making this request of Jesus over and over and over. Simon was determined to get Jesus to have dinner with him. He was relentless in his request. He kept asking him until Jesus finally caved in. Now, this is suspicious to me because Simon was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were the religious elite of that time. I've told you that often, and we've talked about this many times. They were well-respected, influential religious leaders, but they were threatened by Jesus. The word Pharisee means separated one. They separated themselves from people who they viewed to be less spiritual, they were extremely religious, and they were steeped in religious tradition. Jesus didn't have a whole lot of time for the Pharisees. In fact, he had some pretty harsh things to say about them. At one point, he called them whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones. What he was implying was they looked good on the outside. They worked really hard to look good on the outside, but on the inside, they were full of death. He contradicted their teaching, and he uncovered errors in their interpretation of Scripture and in their traditions, and most of all, he exposed their hypocrisy. So this invitation to eat with the Pharisee was suspicious at best. As I said, the Pharisees were threatened by Jesus, and they were constantly trying to entrap him. They, they, they were constantly trying to find some reason to accuse him. Most commentators believe that this dinner invitation was probably a setup. But can I just tell you that I love that Jesus graciously accepted it, even though he probably knew it was a setup. 
The Pharisees often rebuked Jesus for being a, fe- a friend of sinners and tax collectors. They, they would reprove him saying, he welcomes sinners. He welcomes tax collectors. That word welcome means to eagerly await or expect or look for. It's not a passive waiting. It's a picture of Jesus going out and seeking relationship with sinners and inviting them into a place of intimacy with them. Is anybody here tonight glad that Jesus goes out searching and seeking the lost, inviting us into a place of relationship with him? But here's the beautiful thing. Jesus was not only seeking relationship with sinners and tax collectors, here we see him also seeking relationship with the religious elite and with the hypocrites as well. Over and over in Scripture, we see Jesus making himself available to all, no matter what their background is, no matter what their condition is. He came to seek and save the lost. That was the mission that, that, that always was forefront in his mind. Verse 36b says, so he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. That, that, re, that phrase, reclined at the table, it describes the posture for eating in the Near East. Guests did not sit at tables or, at chair, or on chairs like we do today. Rather, they, they laid down on couches and propped themselves up on pillows and, and reclined. They would rest on their their left elbow and they would eat with their right hand stretched out in front of them. They didn't use utensils like we do today. And so that was the position Jesus was in. He was reclining at the table with his feet, which they considered unclean and filthy. That, that, That would have been out to the back of him. And so Luke is drawing a picture for us, and he's saying Jesus was reclining at the table when a woman, now picture this in your mind, picture Jesus reclining at the table with all of these religious elite. (laughs) And then the Bible says when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet weeping. Notice the verbiage that's used there. Luke tells us she was a woman who had lived a sinful life. This woman had a reputation. Anybody besides me had a reputation. I I understand what it means to to have a reputation. She had a reputation in that town. People knew all about her. They, They knew all about her sin. Notice that we don't know her name, but we sure know a lot about her reputation. The Greek wording means she was devoted to sin. Most commentators think that she was probably a prostitute, but whatever her reputation was, it preceded her to dinner uh, that night. Everyone knew about her past. The label had been attached. and So I just need to tell you that sometimes it's hard to escape the world's label. So, hey, we, oh, there's Susie the alcoholic or, or Betty the adulterer, and, and that sin, like this woman's, could have been long repented of, and yet people really the enemy of our soul, continues to try to keep us bound to the choices of our past and the sins of yesterday. He keeps reminding us uh, of our past instead of uh, us resting in the present hope we have in Christ Jesus. Everyone in this story seemed to know about her past, and yet we, the readers, do not know much about her sin, and I think that's important. It's vital that the question regarding the type of sin that she committed remains unanswered because we all sin and we all fall short. 
And if we knew what the sin was that she was guilty of, <laughs> we, we would be able to, we might be tempted to say, well, I'm a sinner, I know I'm a sin, but I would never do that. So instead, the author, Luke, invites us to a place, uh, to place ourselves in her place and to feel the sting of this story. Can, can you just imagine what she must have been feeling? When I study the Word of God, I try to put myself in the picture. I try to smell the smells. I, I try to envision what the, the weather would have been like, what their voices would have sounded like, what, what they'd be wearing. I, I try to picture what was happening at that time. And so I drew that picture for you. Jesus is reclining at the table with all of these religious leaders, and, and in comes a woman, and, and it's bad enough that she's a woman, but she, she's a woman now with a sinful past, <laughs> And she's coming into a place with, with, with men, and not just men, but the religious leaders of the day, and not just the religious leaders, but the Pharisees, those who separate themselves from the likes of her, those whose goal in life was to separate themselves from sinners. And here she stood in front of them at the feet of Jesus with an alabaster jar. I just want to know why she came. Commentators tell us that this woman entered Simon's house that night, a sinner who had been forgiven. Thus, that was the reason she was coming. She, did, she must have encountered Jesus somewhere along the line, and that encounter changed her life. Can I just tell you, one encounter with Jesus can dramatically change your life. Maybe she had seen the miracle of Nain that took place prior to this where Jesus uh, uh, interrupted a funeral and resurrected a, a, a widow's only son. Maybe she had heard Jesus teaching in the streets, but one thing is for sure that she had heard the truth and her life was changed because of it. At some point, she realized she was safe with Jesus, safe to truly be honest about herself and her sin, safe to stop hiding, safe to take the religious mask off, safe to stop running, safe to find everything she needed in him. Can I tell you, you are safe with Jesus. It doesn't matter what you've done. There is nothing you could ever do that could separate you from the love of God. Nothing. And he invites you to come just as you are into his presence. This woman was willing to risk everything to come into his presence. And she brought with her an alabaster jar of perfume. This was not a spontaneous act. The word says she learned that Jesus was there and, and intentionally brought that alabaster jar. It wasn't a random act. It was intentional. As I said, I, I believe this woman had encountered Jesus somewhere along the line, and she truly got free, and she was bringing the best she had that day to bring to his feet in worship. Contrast that to Simon, the Pharisee, on the other hand. He thought he knew all there was to know about God. It was his business. It was his job. He was a spiritual leader, and yet his heart was far from him. He knew God in his head, but what he knew about God hadn't reached his heart. Can I just tell you, church, that sometimes we can be guilty of this. We can know a whole lot about God, but not know God, not know him intimately. We can serve him in, in our dead religion, but, but sometimes we, we miss the relationship, the beauty of the relationship. Over and over in Scripture, we see Scripture talk about genuine faith or sincere faith. It means faith without play-acting. It means faith that's the real deal, that, that you're not putting on an act. 
means faith without hypocrisy. Simon was hiding behind a mask of spirituality, acting the part but never experiencing the benefits. He was play-acting, exactly what the word hypocrite means. The goal is to have faith that's not an act, to be the real deal or nothing at all. Remember, Jesus was reclining at this table, and, and that's, that's how she was able to stand at his feet. You see, in Bible times, when a guest arrived at a home, he would be normally greeted with a kiss, usually on the right cheek and then the left. And, and then remember that the roads are dusty and they wore sandals. And, and so it was just a common courtesy that, that when a guest arrived, uh, that, that, that either a servant or the host himself would wash the guest's feet. And after that, the guest's head would be anointed with olive oil, scented with spices. And, and that was just a common courtesy. Hospitality was highly regarded in this society. And these three things were simple gestures of hospitality common for that time. But don't miss the fact that Simon did not honor Jesus' presence with any of that. He failed to show him even these basic common courtesies. I want you to think about that. Jesus was in his house, in his presence, and he treated him as though he was nothing special. William Barclay calls Simon a collector of celebrities. <laughs> you see, people in that time were curious about Jesus. And Simon might have thought that it would do his reputation good to have him dining at his table. People are like that. We like to be around influential people. We, we like to be able to say we know them. It inflates our pride and builds our ego. And most commentators say that Simon wasn't interested in Jesus or his message. He was simply a collector of celebrities. He was patronizing Jesus. That's why he didn't do any of those common courtesies for him. As I studied this message, this passage, I had to ask myself if I patronize Jesus. Do, do I want to be able to say I know him? Do I want people to think we're tight? Do, do I say to Jesus, I want you to eat with me, dwell with me, visit me occasionally, but I don't want to give you the respect you deserve by obeying your word and serving you passionately? Sometimes I think we can patronize Jesus, and that's not a proper response to his extravagant love. This woman was coming that day in response to his grace, in, in response to his mercy, in response to his extravagant love. She could not be accused of patronizing Jesus. <laughs> so he was reclining at the table, and there were probably uh, tables in that time where were probably set up, commentators say, in like a square. There were probably three tables set around in a square with access to the middle so that a servant could bring in food. And, and, and couches were arranged on the outside of those three tables, close to one another. As I said, they would prop, prop their arm up in a cushion and their feet would be sticking out the end of the couch. And, and dinners like this were often a public affair, especially when a rabbi or, or a teacher was in town, and, and so they would be open to the public, and oftentimes the people hosting, uh, the, the, the public would be able to come in and just stand around the fringes uh, of the room and, and be able to listen in to what the rabbi or the teacher was saying. And so that's probably the reason this woman was there. We, we shouldn't be surprised that she was there, although for a woman to be there listening to a rabbi was a big deal. But for a sinful woman to be there and get that close to a rabbi was an even bigger deal. I want you to notice that this woman says nothing through this entire story. 
but her actions speak volumes. Clearly, this woman had been profoundly impacted by Jesus. I just wonder if you have been profoundly impacted by Jesus or if you're just serving him and going through the religious emotions. This woman had been profoundly impacted. She had encountered him and the lights came on and she was filled with an overwhelming sense of her sinfulness and the grace that he extended to her. You see, you can't understand grace until you understand the magnitude of your sin. This woman did, and she was overcome with thankfulness, and she was there that day to pour that out on Jesus. As I studied this passage, I had to ask myself, why would a woman of her reputation risk going to a Pharisee's house? The people who separated themselves from the likes of her, these men intentionally separated themselves it was reckless for her to do that. It was risky for her to do that. It would be like handing somebody a baseball bat and giving them permission to hit you over the head with it. What was she thinking? I understand this. You see, when I met my husband, I didn't know what to think. I, you see, I, I had all the men that I had been involved with in my life up until that point had wounded me deeply. They had taken and not given in return. I had run the gamut of relationships, experiencing emotional, physical, and, and sexual abuse. And, and so when my boss recommended that, that I meet with Pastor Briscoe, I wanted absolutely nothing to do with it. I had had my fill of men. I knew what they were like. So after much persuasion, <laughs> she talked me into sharing my story with him and getting his insight, and reluctantly I agreed, but I insisted that she go alone. And Pastor Briscoe prayed for me that day. And when he did, it shook the foundations of my life. You see, I had known a lot of men, but never a man that was tender like him. His words were kind and life-giving and not life-taking. My encounter with him left me encouraged and filled with hope. And one thing was for sure, my life would never be the same after meeting him. Now that was an earthly man. I believe this woman experienced the same kind of thing only on a much grander scale. She was a prostitute. Up until this time, the men in her life used her and abused her. They took from her instead of sowing into her. They used her and discarded her. And she had probably heard every promise, felt every rejection, and knew what it was like to be treated like an object and not a person. And then she met Jesus. And she came face to face with his tender extravagant love and her encounter with him caused her to see her worth and her value as a person it gave he gave her life instead of taking it from her he spoke words of hope and encouragement and believed in her he saw her value and her worth not because of what she could give him but because of who she was somewhere along the line she realized she no longer needed to accept the cheap fraudulent love that she had been settling for in her illicit relationships. His was an offer of extravagant love. And as a result, her life would never be the same. That's why she could come. That's why she was willing to take the risk. She didn't care what the other men who were present thought. She was exposed, and it didn't matter to her anymore. My father-in-law used to always say to me, Rhea, reputation is what man thinks you are. Character is what God knows you are. 
She didn't care what they thought about her reputation. Yes, she was a sinful woman, and she'd be the first to admit it, but her encounter with Jesus awakened in her a boundless love for the one who had set her free, and she couldn't help but respond to it. That's why she came that day. And the Bible said she stood behind him at his feet, and she began to wet his feet with her tears. Simon's servant should have been washing his feet, so instead she washed them with her tears, Jesus said. It was the job of a servant or a slave, and it was not a fun job. And so the fact that she was washing his feet was a sign of submission and humility. She was washing them with her tears and drying them with her hair. The eyes she had once used to seduce were now overflowing with tears of repentance. Our tears are precious to him. Can I tell you? Do you know that the Bible says that every tear you've ever cried, Jesus keeps in a bottle? That's how precious they are to him. He doesn't miss one of them. She was crying and wiping his feet, washing his feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair. In Bible times, it was scandalous for a woman to, to, to be seen with her hair down. That was only done in private before her husband. And, but again, this woman didn't even care. Her, it was heartfelt worship, and she was offering it in total abandonment. She didn't care what the people around her thought. It wasn't about them anyway. It was about her and the Lord. I love the picture of David when, when he was worshiping the Lord and his wife looked out and, and she couldn't believe how undignified he was being. And he said, I will be even more undignified than this. You see, that's what worship does. Worship doesn't care what people think. Worship doesn't care if people judge you. They will be as undignified as they need to be because it's about them and their Lord. She kissed his feet and wiped them. She, she, she wiped his feet with her hair and kissed his feet. That word kiss meant she kicked, she kissed them over and over and over with affection, affectionate tenderness. And she poured perfume on his feet. Not just a couple drops either, the entire jar. You see, most Jewish women, women would wear a little bottle of concentrated perfume around their neck, and they were called alabasters, and they were costly. And, and, and you know, it is a, it's a hot climate, and, and so when they got stinky, they just refreshen up a little bit with some perfume. And, and this jar that, that she would have been, uh, commentators tell us, would have been hanging around her neck were valuable. In, in, in this time, they usually bought alabaster jars as an investment, so this, buy, this jar would have been extremely expensive, and, and as expensive as it was, think about it. It was the best she had, and she was bringing it to Jesus. Perfume. Remember her profession. She's a prostitute. <laughs> she had probably used that perfume to lure men to her scent, to leave some of her behind. And now she was pouring that very thing out at the feet of Jesus emptying it out on the one who had emptied her life from the sin that held her captive. Smells are interesting, aren't they? My mother died, oh, 2009, um, and uh, my sister uh, called and said, you know, what would you like of moms? And I said, there's only two things that I want. I want her Bible, and I want her bathrobe, because she wore her bathrobe all the time. And um, so my sister sent me the box uh, soon after her death, and I couldn't bear to open it up. I just kept it sealed and stuck it in the closet on the shelf. And maybe a few years ago, 
I got the courage to open it up for the first time since she had passed away. And I broke the, the seal and took the lid off the box. And even after all those years, I lifted that robe up and I held it to my nose. And I could still smell the scent of my mom on that robe. You see, smells are memorable. They, they, they permeate. They, they stay with you. They take you back. <laughs> Can you imagine her pouring that alabaster jar? Not a dab, a little dab will do you, <laughs> but the entire jar. I love it. I love that Simon would have had to smell that perfume for the next however long in his house and be reminded of her incredible love. I love that. Kendall is my youngest, and she came a whole lot of years after all the others. And, but my daughter, Christy and Brooke, my daughters, Christy and Brooke, uh, when they were teenagers, uh, we, I took them out shopping one day, and I normally would drive my car. I never drove Dave's. And, but this time, for whatever reason, we had taken Dave's car. And, and we went into the department store, and I think it was Macy's, and we did, you know, what every poor pastor's wife and their teenage daughters would do. We went into the fragrance session, and we're like, shh, taking the most expensive bottle of perfume we can find, and we're all putting this perfume on. I mean, like, every, as much as we could possibly do, this going to last me a while, put my coat, put a little bit of my coat so it's there for a couple of weeks. And I got in the car, we put our seatbelts on, we went back home, and couple weeks later, I got in Dave's car, and I put the seatbelt on, and I'm like, huh, <laughs> this isn't my perfume. I need to talk to Dave. I didn't know who's in his car. And then I remembered the perfume episode. I love that fragrances remain, that they linger. And I love that Simon, the arrogant Pharisee who was judging somebody be, because of her sin, <laughs> I love that he had to smell that perfume for the next couple months. And that he would be reminded of someone who had been forgiven much and loved much as a result. So verse 39 says, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw what she was doing, he said to himself, notice he said it to himself, not out loud. He, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is. Flip back to, to, to Luke chapter uh, 7 and, and just look over at verse 16. This is right after Jesus uh, raises the widow at Nain's son. And it says, Then a fear came upon all, and, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. So the fact that Simon says, If this man were a prophet, he heard that rumor. He heard that Jesus was a prophet and that God was visiting his people. And so now he's saying, if this man were really a prophet, so now we know why he invited Jesus to come to his house for dinner. He was indeed a collector of celebrities. He was, he was interested. He was curious about Jesus and what he was doing. 
But he looked at him, allowing this sinful, unclean woman to touch him. And, you know, this Pharisee, the one who separated themselves from sinful people, the, separate, the woes who separated themselves from the likes of her. Why, if you're a prophet, would you even let her touch you like this? What are you thinking? If you were a prophet, you would know what a sinful person, you would not let her touch you. So if this man were a prophet, he would know what type of woman she is. <laughs> Who just loves my Jesus? Simon's disturbed by what he sees. Jesus is not. And so look at Jesus' response. Simon's thinking this to himself. He doesn't even say it out loud. <laughs> he, he doesn't like Jesus' open acceptance of this sinful woman, and her actions are troubling to him. And but see, Jesus understands. He understands that, 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 that she, he's not put off by her sinful reputation. He's not put off by these actions because he understands that her condition simply speaks of her need to be rightly related to God. You see, that's what we do. We judge people. We look at their sin. We look at the outward. God judges. Man judges by the outward appearance, but God judges by the heart. And this is what we do. We go around and we look at people who don't look like us, who don't act like us, who aren't cleaned up and religious, and we make a judgment about them based on the external, and we never get close enough to them to even find out who they are on the inside. How will they know unless somebody tells them? And how can somebody tell them if you're excluded? Including them and not including them. Leslie and I were praying this morning, and I've been thinking about this. I'm troubled by this. I'm troubled that the church, we, we make people look like us. We make them put on a spiritual mask so they look like us, they act like us, they, they say all the right things, they do all the right things, and nobody's free to share their heart. Nobody's free to share their struggles and their pain because we, we've become not a hospital where people can come and go get healed, but actually a courtroom where people can come and get judged, and that should not be. And so we're praying this morning, and we were praying, we have a list of people that we pray for, and, and we, we were praying for some people who are hurting, people who don't look like us. We were out of town, and I, I was just sitting someplace, and this man came up to me, and he was different, and um, he complimented me, and I said, oh, tell me about yourself, and and he did, and, and he was talking. I said, sit down, talk to us. I'd love to talk to you. And, and, and I said, your friend, I saw your friend walked out, and he said, no, that's my husband. And I said, oh, I'd love to meet him. And um, so he came back in, and they sat down and talked to us. And, and he, I said, so tell me about your life. And, and he's telling me about his life. And he says, you know, I have multiple personality disorder. And I said, oh, no. And he said, actually, Garth, he wants to come out and meet you too. And then he, like, did it, am I exaggerating? He, like, all of a sudden just became this different person, and he regressed, and he began to speak in a different voice. And, you know, me, in my mind, I'm thinking, I can cast that out of you. <laughs> Leslie's looking at me like, are you going to do something? <laughs> so we were praying for him this morning. I loved him. I thought he was precious. I love talking to him. I love meeting his husband. Church, come on. How will they know unless somebody tells them? And how can somebody tell them if you're not letting them get close enough to you for them to listen? 
So we were praying for him this morning. We were praying for this list of people who we pray for. And, and, and the Lord reminded me of something. He said, Rhea, I, I am labeled. I am, I, all through scripture, you see me listed as a friend of sinners and tax collectors. I dine with the Pharisees, with the religious elite. But nowhere do you see that I'm a friend of the religious elite. You see me being a friend. My relationship with sinners, my relationship with tax collectors is, is so, so dear that when people see it from a distance, they label me their friend. They see how I'm acting with sinners and they say, he's their friend. He welcomes them. He goes out and pursues them and brings them to himself. And he said, Rhea, that's what I want you to do. Acceptance. Not of their sin, but of them. What does Swindoll say? Listen to this. Swindoll says, Jesus' acceptance of sinners gave them greater freedom to acknowledge their own wrongdoing and seek, him, seek from him a remedy for their sinfulness. His acceptance opened the door to repentance. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus never compromised the righteousness of God, yet he remained utterly accepting of deeply flawed people. The Lord said to me, Rhea, there is a line where you can not compromise the righteousness of God, but you can be utterly accepting of deeply flawed people because you are one. You are one. And Rhea, what if I kept a record of your sins? Who in this room could stand who in this room could stand if we kept, God kept a record of our sins, of our wrongs? And yet, if I'm not comfortable with you, I'm going to tell you, when that man started manifesting, I was like, whoa, wasn't ready for that one. <clears throat> and am I exaggerating one bit? That's exactly how it happened. But I got to tell him. Let's just like, what were you, wait, I, I'm asking him what do you do for a living because I'm hoping he's going to say to me, what do you do for a living? I'm all in on that one. But he saw something. And unless they see Jesus in you. My mama used to say to me, Rhea, you are the only Bible that some people are ever going to read. So be very careful how you're living. Jesus was a friend of sinners and tax collectors. He welcomed them. Simon said if he only knew who was touching him, <laughs> he wouldn't let her get so close. Anybody here tonight glad besides me that Jesus lets sinners get close? It's the lack of awareness that we're all sinners and that we're all in the need of a Savior that provides imp the impetus for arrogant thoughts like that. This Pharisee had a proud spirit that kept him from seeing the depth of his own sin and, his, and the lack of ability to atone for it. He's shocked by Jesus. He's shocked by this woman's actions. And he didn't say it out loud. And then, but Jesus, the word, look at verse 40. It says Jesus answered him. He was just thinking this, and yet Jesus answered him. Jesus knew exactly what was going on in Simon's heart, and he also knew what was going on in the woman's heart. Nothing was hidden from his sight. And so he decided to paint a picture for Simon. A picture that will show him clearly that Jesus knows exactly what kind of woman was touching him, and he also knew exactly what kind of man was sitting in judgment of her. 
Look at verse 40. I love that he was tender and respectful. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, Simon says. Two, two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? You need to know that one denarii is one day's wages. <clears throat> And so Jesus is drawing a picture here to the debtors are sinners, and debt, of course, is sin. And, and he says one, one debtor owns, owes 50 denarii, the other owes 500, but neither one of them can pay it back. They're, they're both bankrupted. They're both broke, and broke is broke whether you owe 50 or 500 denarii. But see, this is what we do. This is what Simon was doing. Simon was looking at this woman and sizing her up, and he was saying, I only owe 50. She has 500. He was looking at her and, and then looking at himself and feeling better about himself, and Jesus was drawing a picture saying, Simon, it doesn't matter. Broke is broke. You're bankrupt. You don't have the ability to pay back. You need a moneylender who will cancel the debt. Our son, Mikey, I'll, I'll never forget, we have seven children, for those of you that don't know, and uh, our, our son Mikey had suddenly, in his teenage years, had a growth spurt, and he uh, began to mature, and he got really big and buff. He was a, a soccer player, and, and he got really buff, and, and, and uh, we were in the, all in the kitchen one night around the kitchen island, and the, the, the boys were all climbing around, and they were showing their muscles, you know, and they were... They, they were squeezing Dave's arm and saying, what happened to your pipes? You don't have any pipes there. And, and they were all, you know, trying to outdo one another, showing them how big their muscles were. And, and all of a sudden, our son Mike asked Dave if he'd arm wrestle with him. And I, I could see Dave's face. I, I know Dave like the back of my hand. And you could just, I don't think the kids realized it, but I could look at Dave's face and say, I knew what he was thinking. This is the day he had dreaded. This is the day that one of his sons was going to challenge him, and he wasn't going to be able to take them on. He wasn't going to be able to win, and, and he knew he had to win this fight. He had four boys and three girls who were watching this, and, and he could not afford to go down. He had to win it, and yet he looked at his own arm, <laughs> and he looked at Big Buff Mike, and he thought, oh, and I'm just breathing a prayer. I'm like, Lord, he's got to win. And so Mike puts his arm up, and I'm like, oh, and now all the kids are like, all in. They just, they are not going to miss this. And, and Dave hesitantly puts his arm up, and, and I'm thinking, Lord, if, I, if there's ever an anointing needed for arm wrestling, <laughs> this is it. And, and so they, they, they join their arms, and all of a sudden, bam, Mikey's arm went down. And I was like, yes, that's my man. And, and Mikey looked at his arm like, what just happened? <laughs> this old man <laughs> with shrinking muscles and me, he, and so he said, let's go again. And now it's really like serious and all the boys, like everybody's cheering and, and, and Dave has to win and he's just used every bit of energy he had <laughs> to take him down the first time. And so he goes back up and bam, again, and I'm like, yes, that is my man. That's my man. That is my man right there. Did <laughs> you see what happened? Mikey had overestimated his ability. You see, he, he, he had taken a look at Dave and then taken a look at himself and sized him up and, and thought, he's nothing. I'm so much better. Simon did the same thing. 
He had overestimated his ability. He had totally missed the point. He looked at this sinful woman and he compared himself to her and he came out looking pretty good. I'm sure he was thinking, thank goodness I'm not sinful like her. But Jesus cleared it all up and he said, Simon, you might think your debt is only 50 denarii and hers is 500. Her debt may be 10 times bigger than yours, but both are debt nonetheless and neither one of you can pay it back. You're both bankrupt. You see, we are all spiritually bankrupt. Every one of us owes a debt we cannot pay. Maybe your sin debt doesn't look as bad as mine. Maybe you did not live in the muck and the mire. Maybe you never spent a day in the pig pen, but I did. And so when Jesus rescued me, let me tell you what. People say to me, why do you preach the way you do? Why are you so passionate about Jesus? Because I was once lost, and now I'm found. He delivered me out of the muck and the mire, and he put my feet back on solid ground. And I will spend the rest of my life testifying testifying to his goodness because she who's been forgiven much loves much now look at my favorite part verse 44 and I promise I'm finishing then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon Simon do you see this woman I love it the word for see here is blepo in the Greek it means to carefully notice it means to perceive to understand it means to see and be impacted and changed by what you see Jesus was saying Simon do, do you see this woman now, I, I know that you see her sin I know you see her past but do you see her Simon can you see past her sin to her pain past her seductiveness to her neediness Simon do you see this woman you see isn't this what we do in the world today we take one look at people and we make a judgment about them but we don't take time to see beyond their sin beyond the, their external appearance to the pain to the heart behind it as I sat with that man the other day all I could say I just kept saying Lord let me see what I'm not seeing here don't let me make a judgment by the external appearance let me see his heart Simon do you see this woman aren't you glad we have a God who sees he sees past our addiction to the emptiness that cries out he sees past our anger to the unsafe emotion it hides he sees past the perversions of our heart the heart he created and knows can be made pure once again he sees past our perfectionism to our insecurities he sees past our bitterness to the pain behind it he sees past our detachment to the fear of rejection that that feeds it he sees past our spiritual veneer to the heart that feels so unworthy and is desperately in need of love and acceptance. We have a God who sees. All Simon saw was her sin. He didn't take the time, nor did he have an interest to see beneath it. Verse 44 through 50 Jesus says, Simon, I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil in my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins. Notice Jesus doesn't deny that she had lots to be forgiven for. Her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who's been forgiven little loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is making it perfectly clear that he knows who the woman is and the depth of her sin. 
Simon had doubted that Jesus was a prophet because he hadn't discerned about this woman, but Jesus says her many sins. He's letting Simon know he's very well aware of who she is. But Simon thought he had little sins and was in little need of forgiveness. And and Jesus' point is that's the reason you love little Simon. Rock says, God offers great forgiveness to all to deal with their sin, and those who grasp it and receive it realize how much God has done and responds in acts of love. The Pharisee who is forgiven little needs to see God's work as more significant, and then his response will be appropriate. His little sin still needs treatment. Can I tell you, our little sin still needs treatment. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. Jesus wasn't saying this woman's sins were forgiven because she loved much. Her love for Jesus couldn't earn his forgiveness. Her passionate display of love was the result of realizing the depth of forgiveness she had received. So Jesus said she has been forgiven much, loves much. Scripture says in 1 John 4, we love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God who is not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother as well. Simon looked at this woman and made a judgment about her. He's saying he loves God, but he's judging this woman. And and she comes and she's pouring herself out unashamedly at the feet of Jesus. So Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. That word, that phrase forgiven, it's in the imperfect tense. It, It means that she's in a state of forgiveness. It suggests that forgiveness began somewhere in the past. That's why commentators say she came there that day a forgiven sinner. She might have been a sinner, but she she had realized the forgiveness that was available to her. And she came in response to that. But now, imagine the judgmental looks of all these religious elite, uh, the unkind actions that probably did not go unnoticed by her. I'm sure that she was leaving that place doubting her forgiveness. I told you that I know what it's like to be, to live in the pig pen. I know what it's like to slop in sin. And I know what it's like to have people remind you of that sin and judge you because of it. I know how easy it is for doubt to creep in even when you know God has forgiven it because the world so clearly remembers your sin. And I believe that's where this woman was when she got up to leave that day. And so Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Can you just imagine tender Jesus looking at her giving his words of reassurance, your sins have been forgiven. Don't let what happened to you here today make you doubt. Go in peace. I believe he said that to reassure the woman, to provide confirmation to her in the face of the judgmental words of the Pharisees, to counter the rejection she probably felt. He says, go in peace the thing that she probably needed to hear most. And maybe that's where some of you are here tonight. Go in peace from the bondage of your past. Go in peace from the torment uh, of the memories. Go in peace from the condemnation and the judgmental attitudes of others. God's peace, which passes all understanding, is available to you. The word for peace there is shalom. It means uh, nothing missing, nothing broken, absolute 
wholeness? Do you know that he wants to restore everything you've been through, everything you've endured, all the bad choices you've made? He wants to wash away and remove as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. That is grace. That is mercy. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. It is given freely as a gift from him. And he wants to extend that to you tonight. If you are here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can have that kind of peace. Let me ask you where you are in the story. Maybe you're here tonight and you're like Simon. Maybe this story has served as a warning regarding your own lovelessness. Maybe it's a warning regarding your own self-righteousness, that you look at other people and you make judgments about them, but you leave feeling pretty good about yourself. Maybe you're recognizing that you love little because of the little value you've placed on your own forgiveness. Maybe you've taken for granted the enormous debt that was canceled on your behalf. Maybe you spend way too much time evaluating and calculating other people's sins and judging their sinful life. God is speaking to you tonight. He wants to deliver you from loving little into a life that is in reckless abandonment to him. Or maybe you're here tonight and the one you identify most is the sinful woman. Maybe like me, you've had a life of regret. Maybe you are devoted to sin and you don't know how to get free. Let me introduce you to the man who can. Let me introduce you to the lover of your soul, the one who sets you free, and he who the sun sets free is free indeed. He invites you to come just as you are. You don't need to clean yourself up for it. first. If I had waited to clean myself up before I came to Jesus, I would still be waiting. Only Jesus has the power to do that. That is the beauty of grace. That's the beauty of his mercy. Maybe like this woman, you've been looking for love in all the wrong places, and you're satisfied with fraudulent love that leaves you feeling empty and worthless. Maybe you need to hear that your sins are forgiven and go in peace tonight. Or maybe you've never encountered Jesus. If you've never trusted him as your Lord and Savior, I'm begging you to do so before you leave tonight. Take him as your Lord and Savior, and you can hear him say, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. No matter where you are in this story, find yourself. Find yourself someplace because we all fit someplace in this story. The Bible says that we're deceived by the pride of our heart. We don't want to see our stuff. We don't want to see where we need to change. We don't want to embrace God's word and let it change us and transform us. But I promise you it has the power to do that. This woman who had lived a sinful life, who had a reputation of that, encountered Jesus and it radically changed her life. Encounter will do that. You. It's my prayer that Monday night is a place where you can encounter him and you can leave truly changed and transformed. I'm going to ask Megan and the team to come and just close us out tonight, but before she, before she does or while she's coming, let me just pray for you. This story is just powerful. I almost put it away and, and started something new uh, because it just is such a basic story. I love narratives. I, I love to be able to find myself in the narrative, and uh, it's somehow they just, they're just so applicable to our life. But th there's a danger in stories we're so familiar uh, with <laughs> that we tune ourselves out, and we don't, we don't really ask God how we can apply that to our life. I, I, I pray you wouldn't do that tonight.
pray you take a moment, even as Megan closes, and, and try to, to ask yourself where you are in this story. And so, Father, I just pray for every man and woman here tonight. Lord, I thank you for your mercy and your grace. I thank you, Lord, that you accept us as we are, but you love us too much to let us stay that way. That the same grace that saves us, transforms us, empowers us, and equips us to change. And I thank you for that, Lord. Father, I pray that you would give us a revelation of who you are, of your power to transform to make us and mold us to be more like you. Lord, I want to be more like you. Lord, teach us what it means to truly worship you. To pour out the best we have at your feet. To lavish you with the love that you're so deserving of. Father, your word says that our love for you ravishes your heart. blows my mind, Lord. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for the cleansing power of your blood. We love you, Lord. And we give you glory, honor, and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.